Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Kernodal. I'm going to be your guest host today. And we just want to welcome everyone to the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. We have a treat for you today. I know you're going to enjoy it. So today's educators are the Tampa Bay bass trio La Lucha, Mark Feynman, John O'Leary, and Alejandro Arenas. And their topic is how, when, and why to release an album. So just to put it out here, participants are going to be muted upon entry and uh, during our ma master class. We appreciate your cooperation to remain muted for the courtesy of others. If you have any specific question, please feel free to use the chat feature in the toolbar to ask a question and the educator will try to reserve some time to answer the questions. Uh, we hope you enjoy today's session. Uh, there's more upcoming free sessions and they'll be posted at www.clearwaterjazz.com education. Your feedback and future session topic suggestions are welcome so please email them to info at clearwaterjazz.com also please be sure to check out the studio archive of past video sessions at clearwaterjazz.com's education and outreach section brought to you by blue water wealth management at stewart partners and duke energy as well as our young lines podcast available wherever you stream brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. Search Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. So this is, these guys aren't a visitor at all for uh, Clearwater Jazz. They've been here plenty of, plenty of times. Um, just a little bit about them. LaLucha is Tampa-based trio. Everyone loves them around here. Their music ventures into a wide variety of musical styles and offers a fun mix of genres under the jazz umbrella. Um, they have received countless accolades and have extensive national and international performance experience, including several plays at the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Music Festival. Visit www.laluchamusic.com for more information about the band, getting in touch with them, and about their new albums. This is their second appearance as a group, and um, we really welcome them back. And guess what, guys? The stage is all yours. Thank you so much, Thank Michael. You. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, we want to give a shout out and thank you to Clearwater Jazz Outreach and the Young Lions Master Sessions for hosting all of these sessions. They're all fantastic. Uh, each of us do these individually, and we also check them out uh, ourselves. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful information. Uh, we actually have this session and next week as a trio, kind of talking about some logistics within being a band. This one, not specifically as a band, but can work as an individual artist. So today is our how, why, and when to release an album. Uh, as a trio, La Lucha is no stranger to releasing uh, records over the last uh, 11 years. Uh, we have, I think it's seven albums under our own name, um, and we've also been featured on many albums with other artists as session musicians. Today we're going to kind of talk about, we're going to specifically talk about the process of inception of wanting to record an album, 
to the actual release of the record. And we're going to answer kind of three big questions that uh, Alejandro, John, and myself are going to take turns talking about. Uh, I'll give the, the topics up front, and then we'll kind of dive right in. So there's going to be a lot of information. If you have questions, please throw it in the chat, and we'll try to hit that throughout or at the end. So the, the, the first the first of the, the three that we're going to be talking about is the why, the initial decision of why to record an album. Um, and then we're going to take a look at how to actually make this happen, the different steps in the process that we've used. And then we're going to take a look at the when. When should someone release an album and everything involved with that. So I'm going to go ahead and throw it right to Alejandro. He's going to speak now. We may jump in if he needs us, but Al, it's all you. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mark. Um, the, all right, where do we start? So recording an album. So first of all, let's, let's just establish what an album is, right? An album is essentially a collection of songs. And how, do we get, how did we get to the point where we actually release albums? Uh, well, when you think about a little bit of the history of how we, the album became kind of the widely accepted form of um, recorded representation of a band, um, right? Like before that, before albums, we had singles. Really, you had the the, the 45s with a side A and a side B, and then you kind of had a single. The a band became popular, maybe maybe because one of one of those songs, and then. Uh, people wanted to hear more of the band, so the record company started putting together albums. And then over the time, you uh, the albums became a concept within itself. Uh, <clears throat> so you have like famous concept albums like Sgt. Pepper's Only Half Club Band by The Beatles. Uh, within jazz, you know, Kind of Blue is probably about as close to a, to a, one of the first concept albums within um, jazz. So. Um, the idea is that you have a collection of songs that are strung together by a, a theme or, or an idea. Um, so the reason I mentioned that is because that is something to consider when you're creating an album. Now, I do want to mention, and we've talked about this as a band, um, that the industry is shifting. So we're kind of getting back to the idea of having singles as the big release um, and not necessarily an album. Part of this is because of streaming and the way things are being produced. Also, um, things are a lot more visual nowadays as people have more and more access to being able to make their own videos and being able to do all these things. Uh, you know, creating a video that you can release online and get followers and stuff like that is also a very acceptable way of uh, sharing your material these days, but the album is still a big part of music and, and, and the representation of a moment in time. So that brings me into the idea of why to record an album. Um, so we've kind of brainstormed and, and thought of a few questions or things that you have, you have to wonder uh, the reason why to do this. So first of all, do you want to make money? So, you know, probably this is not <laughs> the best uh, reason to make an album um, these days because, you know, record sales are not what they used to be. Uh, also, you know, without the support of a record label, distribution is really difficult. 
And if you're just really something to stream, you know, we could do a whole thing of how uh, Spotify doesn't pay the artists enough and most stream services actually don't. But let's stay on the positive um, side of things. So, okay, one thing is that when you're playing live gigs, when those come back, you can actually sell CDs. So it actually doesn't cost a lot of money to actually print your own CDs. So you can sell them and make a lot of profit on those. So there is a way to make money, but you know. So then the other question is, everybody's doing it or is everybody doing it, right? Are you just doing it because everybody else is releasing albums? Um, you know, of course you wanna be long in the industry. You wanna be part of this. So you wanna make sure that um, well, you know, you, the, you are part of what's happening. So uh, another thing is you want to document or need to document a specific moment in your life as an artist. Um, and this kind of ties in with a couple of the things that, that, that we're going to talk about from here on, uh, which is the album as a moment in time, right? As a representation, you know, it, 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 as jazz musicians, part of what we do is that we record live and it's a little bit different when you, when you, you compare it to certain rock bands. You know, if you're Guns N' Roses, for example, you take 10 years to record an album. Uh, jazz uh, albums tend to be recorded over a period of two or three sessions, and that's about it. So it's a, a very in-the-moment type of thing. And you can ask a lot of jazz musicians. They're usually not very they don't like to go back and listen to their own recordings because being that the music is so improvisational, we tend to always be evolving and thinking about other things to do. So as a group, as La Lucha, we, we said at some point, we're like, you know what? This is who we are. This is what we are right now. This is a group of songs that we've put in, uh, together uh, over this period of time, and we're going to do it. So um, this, I'm going to, part of that is is, you know, a natural having a natural cycle of creation in other words you kind of get um you right it, it, think of it like a recital you prepare for a recital you present your recital your concert and it's over right well you know what you do with an album is that you prepare for the album record the album and then you tour the album hopefully and then at some point you may start getting a little sick and tired of playing those songs over and over so you want to start a new cycle and you create a new thing of songs and then you record a new album and so on and so forth. But you've already evolved as an artist from the last album to the next. Um, so that's part of the music business in, in a sense and part of your evolution as an artist. So another question to ask is, are your fans demanding it or your mother or your family? Right. Uh, meaning there's a lot of people that play live all the time. You know, as a bass player, I know this very well where I am a lot of the times a sideman when I'm not playing with the Lucha. And, you know, if you if people see you playing out and they want to hear if you have some recorded material, they ask you, oh, do you have an album? You know, they want to hear more of you. They want to take you home with, with them. You know, we always make the joke that's the cheapest way to take you home with us is uh, <laughs> take us home with you is to buy our album. And then, you know, the last thing is, you have a theme story or concept that you really need to share. Goes back to the idea of the, the, the concept, the album. Um, and it goes along with also how you organize your thoughts as you go through the album. So um, that's, that's kind of the theoretical concept of how and why to create an album. 
So now I'd like to ask Mark, who is our planning uh, master extraordinaire, um, how do you make this happen? Yes. The, uh, so many times the three of us have been in a space together and said, hey, it's feeling like it's that time to uh, to make an album or to start thinking about creating an album. So if you're having that feeling or that thought or you want to do this, how are you going to make this happen? So this is where the planning, the songwriting, the contacting everybody involved and the budgeting happens. So um, inside this big question of the how is the who. So here are my who questions, and then I'll break each one of, of them down. And this is kind of like the big chunk of, of everything. So who is a part of this project musically? Who is part of this project technically or artistically and artistically? Who is a part of this project financially? And who is a part of this project as a listener? And when I say project, I mean this album that you would like to create. Um, so, and some people like to record or like to record their music and document it, but they don't want to release it. We're actually talking about actually releasing this into the wild physically or digitally. Okay, so let's break, break each of those who's down. Who is this project for, um, who is part of this project musically? Well, the musicians are most important as far as who is making this music and making the sound on this record. La Lucha, John Alejandro are definitely on a La Lucha album. On occasion, we've had guest musicians. We've had to reach out to them. Some of them are friends we know, they live down the street. And on occasion, we've had the opportunity to reach out to um, legendary musicians like Houston Person and some contemporaries, Melissa Aldana, Diego Figueredo, and people that we enjoy listening to and figuring out how they can make music with us. And they don't live in the same city, state, country than us. So we have to figure that out. Um, musically, who is going to uh, be on this as a songwriter? All three of us are songwriters. We have a, a, a couple albums and we have a lot of original material. So we pour over tons and tons of music. We're sharing files with each other and deciding what can make it to this record. We normally don't want it to be completely random. If I write a pop song and John writes something that's, uh, you know, uh, country, you know, and Alejandro's doing something electronic, do they fit on the same album? We So we find kind of that thread of where are we, but most of the time, the three of us were experiencing music together so often that we have this lateral line. That's when fish turn all together at the same time. The three of us have this, we've always said we have this lateral line of we're experiencing music and experiences at the same time. And so we're sharing music constantly. Okay, also musically on the part of this project is, is there an arranger? Um, we did an album recently where we had a string quartet and the music needed to be arranged for the string quartet. I did some of it and we were very fortunate to have um, NEA Jazzmaster Dick Hyman arrange one of the pieces for us that we recorded. Um, and so we had to figure out how to make that happen um, because we're also in a pandemic. So I w couldn't just go to his house and pick it up. It had to be scanned in. Um, he's at an age where he was like, 
how do I scan something in? Uh, we figured that out. Who is part of this project technically and artistically? So this is when we get to the point of how is this record going to be recorded? Are you going to be in a studio? Are you going to do this in your bedroom? Are you going to a friend's house? Um, on our very first album, we didn't have access to a studio um, or could afford one, so we used the school practice room. Who recorded it? The only person that we knew that could record music fresh, which was our bassist Alejandro. Alejandro had recording equipment and he was cheap. And so we all took, you know, we brought in mattresses, we set them up between the piano and we set it up ourselves and we ran our own sound. Between takes, we would listen. So you also need to have an engineer, technically, somebody to engineer the session bring equipment, set it up, and actually figure out how to get what you're playing into the mics, into the computer, and then press that onto a CD or a vinyl disc. It's um, magic. It really is magic, but you can figure out how to do it. Another person technically could be the person who's mixing the album or mastering it. Basically, in short, somebody who mixes it is you've built this house, the mixing person takes that furniture you put in the house and you move it around so you like it in the placement. Loud, soft, something's forward or back. And then the mastering engineer is somebody who's really kind of putting the lighting in the room. Is it light, is it dark? Are the levels at the right place that would work for streaming? Or if you're releasing a record on vinyl, it needs to be at a certain level as well. So technically you need to have all of those people involved. Artistically, uh, you may have a producer, and uh, everybody involved is somewhat producing the record, but somebody who who has the ears, that is somebody that's making choices or helping make choices, saying, hey, you know what, that could be a little bit faster or slower, or you know what, you don't need to do 27 takes of this, you can, that first take was perfect. That first you know, record that La Lucha did in that room, you know, we did 70 takes of the first song and we were spent, we were exhausted. And you know what? That first take was probably the best one. It wasn't going to get better. We weren't gonna get better as musicians. We only got more tired running the race, 70 takes in. And so that actually might be a cool concept. One song recorded 70 times, take the last take, take the first take, and then put that on the record and see how it sounds. So the producer is somebody who's artistically making choices. The producer might be somebody who, when you leave the studio, makes uh, sound choices. You know what, this might need a little something extra and you as an artist are okay with giving them that freedom. They're also somebody to say, you've recorded 20 songs but you only need 10 on the record. Let's talk about where, what we're gonna keep or not. Okay, the next thing artistically is having a cover design. Most of the time, somebody might see your record before they hear your record, if they're scrolling on Facebook or if they just see it on the table or, or anywhere that they're scrolling, and technically, and they see your album, or sometimes just in a, in a record store. It has to look to the aesthetic that you want it to look. Um, if you are okay with a black background and white text in Comic Sans that says La Lucha, our new album, cool, that's your aesthetic, but how does that relate to what's on the record? 
this is the tedious part for La Lucha, because we pour over ideas. And we as a band always have to be yes, yes, yes to everything that we want to put out. It can't be absolutely, absolutely, and I hate this. Okay, then we're not doing it. We all have to find the middle ground of we like what's on the record cover. If you've seen our record covers, we normally are not on it. We put uh, our uh, our uh, kind of band, uh, our, our mascot, which is a squirrel, and we find it fun, it's funny, it's lighthearted, and the squirrel's doing different things. We've also become into the position where we've worked with a label recently, and the label wants to put our cover, our photo on it. So we had to find a balance between putting ourselves on the record cover and still having that playful vibe. So we had to get a cover design artist. We had to get a designer. You might need a photographer to take your photos professionally to make sure they're at the right place. And then artistically, maybe you're in the studio and you want somebody to take photos. Or in the case of um, the record we did in last year, in December, we recorded our record in New York and we had a whole video team there. And we had to communicate to the video production team. How many people are going to be there? When do they need to be there? Uh, we need to be able to feed them. Uh, we need to be able to have lighting. Or is there going to be access to electricity? There's so many people in the room. So being able to stay, you know, check. So that is technically and artistically. I want to add one more to that list. And um, that is inside the record you have to write about it and i briefly saw marion seymour who popped into the room and uh her husband is bob seymour who has written the liner notes for one of our uh albums and he's a fantastic writer he knows how to talk about music we know how to play our music but finding somebody who can talk about the album and talk about you is really uh, a beautiful thing to have on your record okay um, Alejandro kind of mentioned this, and this is kind of via the Motown uh, thing that they, they used to have in Motown Records, which was surround yourself with a support system, a.k.a. quality control, right? Having people who you are okay with making decisions or just saying, musically, this sounds great, or visually, this looks really good. Um, okay. So let's move on. I might hit back a little bit on some of those things, but who is a part of this project financially? Okay, this is the part that uh, is sometimes awkward to talk about because people are awkward to talk about money sometimes, but it costs money to make an album sometimes. We don't want to dissuade you from not from making a record because of money. You will find a way, and there are many avenues in which you can raise money. You can do this for free if you have access to recording on your phone or on your computer. But if you wanna really do this at a higher level, over the last, you know, 11 to 14 years, La Lucha has found a way to, you know, our our idea of releasing an album, the sound, the aesthetic, the visual, that's changed with us and who we've brought in as a team. I will say technically, uh, going back technically quick, it was just the three of us in that first initial session uh, on our first album. Then we brought in an engineer. And then we brought in two engineers, somebody who could help out. And the last few albums, it's a whole team of people who are, you know, everybody's turning wheels and we have multiple people 
in the room or that are you know in another room helping out with making sure that it's going as smooth as possible and that we need to hit our deadlines which we're going to talk about soon okay so let's go to finance i said people don't want to talk about it and i deflected it here we go financially how will this album be funded okay are you compensating your team or your musicians everybody who i mentioned are you splitting the funding between your bandmates or your friends in order to pay for something? Um, what is your financial threshold? What are you willing to spend to make this album happen? What does your product look like? Um, meaning, are you going to be putting out a physical product? Our first album, uh, we only could afford 100 copies. The three of us did not. I can I can think I can transparently say the three of us do not come from money <laughs> and we just figured it out to scrape together money we sat in Alejandro's living room and we we're like okay how can we just get a hundred copies of the CD okay so funding options how will it be funded well you can self-fund your record like we did we played gigs we took a percentage of gigs we took some you know scraps of tips from jobs that we had up to the point where we would take a percentage of each gig and just put it aside oh tips put it aside for the record um that's self-funding there's also crowdfunding crowdfunding is uh, a few of them are kickstarter indiegogo and patreon uh on one of our albums we were doing a project and kickstarter was just about a year old and people had just gotten comfortable with the idea of paying for a project it really quick kickstarter is where you present a project and you have a goal amount our goal was ten thousand dollars and you have a certain number of days to reach that goal we had 30 days to make ten thousand dollars if you do not reach ten thousand dollars in that amount of time you don't get the money sorry um we were very fortunate and luckily lucky to hustle those 30 days and it makes you talk about your music and tell people and share about your music you're gaining new fans you're reaching out to people that you know to say hey you know do you want to share you know what you know we went and had meetings with people we did everything we could to figure out a way to raise money for this album um and i'll go back to that in a moment but Indiegogo is similar where you have amount of time, amount of money. If you don't reach that goal, you do still get that money. That's Indiegogo. Patreon is an extended uh, crowdfunding platform where you are helping and you're at the ground level of helping that artist create. And it's not just for one project, but over a period of time mainly. So. I have an artistic life, and would you like to be involved with what I'm doing? You get exclusive content, exclusive access first to something. Um, you're allowed to have these Zoom meetings, and it's it's very it's very cool because it's a little more personal over a long period of time, and you can donate small amounts of money. Where Kickstarter is an end goal, and you might get the album or the T-shirt or the sticker, whatever it is, what level you fund to. Now, I will say that in thinking about when we did our Kickstarter, we were thinking, when is the right time to do a Kickstarter? Um, we were figuring, okay, it was the summer. People probably don't have a lot of money during the summer. And then we're like, oh, wait, 
who would actually donate to this? We were just, you know, just graduated from college and we were poor college students. We're not going to ask our poor college student friends to buy our record. That's just not who is going to be purchasing your record in advance. So we had a, a nice little mailing list of people that had come to our shows and we reached out to them and just said, Hey, if you enjoy coming to our shows and paying a ticket, maybe you'll enjoy uh, this project we're putting together. And one of the levels, uh, some of the higher levels, we had no idea that these people were going to be spending $500, dollars $1,000 for us. And it was people we did not expect at all. People we didn't know were fans. And one of the, a short anecdote is that one of the perks that we had in, uh, you know, funding this record was we will go to your house, we will cook for you, and we will perform a concert in your living room. And we did just that, except that they said, we've got the cooking, we'll cater the night. But what we didn't know was that this person that had funded this, they they were what we called a, a, a sneezer, or now, as John told me, they're called influencers. And they like to share music with other people that are influencers. And they, uh, so when we showed up at the house, it was all people that were involved in the music industry or involved in something that was involved in music, an organization or a festival. And this was really big for us because it put us in front of people that we had not been in front of. And the person that had supported us said, Everybody buy their record. Everybody support this artist. And we got to meet new people and make contacts, contacts, put them on our mailing list. And we've created these relationships. So it, it really is about creating a long relationship because now they will and have been supporting our records from now on. Okay, that's crowdfunding. Very quickly, grants. Grant writing is huge. We started off as a young band and we wrote what was a micro grant. We received $500 for basically writing three paragraphs for how we felt about our music and what we wanted to do with our music. There are larger grants like NEA. Um, there are grants right here in the Tampa Bay area through Creative Pinellas and St. Pete Arts Alliance and Al Down Jazz Association. And they're at many different levels where they give you money based upon your experience, diversity, uh, how long you've been playing or not playing, I mentioned experience, and grants are a great way to fund a project quickly or over a long period of time. The three of us have been involved in a fellowship, specifically at the Studio 620, and it was a 12-month fellowship that allowed us to work on a project, and it was funded, and at the end, we released a CD that came with a book and poetry, and it was a whole project. Um, another way to fund your project is label funding, meaning you have a record label that is on board with putting your product out into the world to people that listen to the label. Um, we are very fortunate to have released two albums under Arbor's Records, which is based in Clearwater, Florida. They're an internationally known label, and they've been releasing records for a long time, and almost every musician, jazz musician that you know, has released or been on a record on an Arbor's Record. And 
they have our uh, Rachel Dahmer runs the label and she is a beautiful human that loves supporting artists. And we spoke with her and we figured out a way to get our music to the places and to people that had not heard our music before. Um, and now what I do want to say is whether you are self releasing crowdfunding or label funding, that does not mean your music is better or worse or that more or less people are going to hear your record you some of the greatest records that you might know you don't know the person but you know them they're self-funded and it's just the amount of work that you put into it and the, the avenues that you would uh do okay really quick and the three of us might have a discussion about this and it's the favorite thing which is the actual process of making the record going into the studio going into the studio is the most important thing because this is where your album your product is made and you know i think all of us kind of shiver and are like okay oh my gosh we're going into the studio the magic has to happen it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's raining or you've hurt your finger or you, if you have a headache, you have to make something happen. And I can tell you, it's not about how much you practice. It's how much you've organized going into the studio. You practice as much as you practice. The three of us will play a song for a year. And by the time we get into the studio, you know, we might be nervous, but you have to be organized. Organize your time. Even if it's just the three of us, our approach has never changed from the three of us in one room with mattresses to having, a, you know, a major jazz label with tons of people and more money behind it than we could afford. And we have to be able to deliver and we have to be able to have a good time, but we have to organize our time. So some of the things to organize your time include where you're recording who's going to be involved, how are you getting there, are you flying people in, do you have a friend just down the street that needs to get there, when do they need to be there, they're your friend, they can't just walk in whenever and then decide to record the song, unless that's okay with you, but if you're paying for studio time, you're paying for it, you want to make sure that you organize when things are happening, if you are the type of person, and you know, between the three of us in the band, we organize what needs to happen. I might be a little frazzled in the morning. My hair certainly is. And so I might text John and say, hey, John, can you pick up food and snacks for everybody? You know, we forgot to eat at our one of our recording sessions, our second record. And Alejandro's wife, Lindsay, was the one that sent over sandwiches and subs and drinks and said, you guys need to eat. And we had no idea why we had headaches. And it was that. So you have to delegate. You have to organize when things are happening. How many songs can you record today? You probably can't get all 20 done unless you can. You know, I can't say that you can't. So this is the fun and exciting part to me is I always map out everything that needs to happen. When we recorded our record in New York, everything from the moment we hit down Actually, we organized it from before, but the moment we landed in New York, where we needed to be. Okay, I had to go to Brooklyn. We had to make sure that John was meeting with a piano tech. That's another thing. Is Do you have instruments? Is your piano tuned? We, that first session, I'm going to go back to that first session, that piano was wildly out of tune. 
And I can say that over time, our um, we've talked about how it's important to have a piano tune. So we make sure there's a piano tech there. And we're extremely fortunate to have somebody that comes in in the morning. John did a, a record recently where the piano tuner was there next to him, tuning the piano between takes, making sure that the aesthetic, the theme, the sound of what you want to release is what you want to release. It's going to be pressed and put out into the wild forever and ever. Amen. So we just want to stress that when you're making a record, make sure it's the record that you want to make. You want it to sound like. And you can find those people that can help you make that sound. Al, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just want to say really quick, uh, mentioning that, and you know, you mentioned this earlier about not talking about all these, especially when we're mentioning the being in a studio, having a piano tuner, and all this stuff. We understand that that doesn't happen to everybody. It, like yeah. Mark said, it happened at the beginning. You know, at the beginning, we had to do what we may do with the piano that we had, but that still allowed us to put the record that we wanted to put out. We use that sound in order to make the record appealing to what we wanted. We would much rather use an auto-tune piano than a keyboard that sounds like a fake piano, for example, unless we were using keyboard sounds. So use the stuff that's at your disposal and make the best out of it. You know, that's really, really important. That's still going to be part of making the record that you want to make. Of course, if you can't afford, you know, $1,000 a day in a studio, you can still do really well. And that goes for the same, the support system that Mark mentioned, you know, it can be, you know, your dad, it can be your, your other musicians, friends that can give you an honest opinion about what it is that you're trying to put out there. You know, having, having neutral ears and also critical ears is very, very important to this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it kind of going off that, that same thing, the three of us have always, you know, uh, we always put a, uh, a sheet together of what we want to do in that studio today. What's our goals for recording that record? What should it sound like? And we make sure that the engineer knows that that idea of what we want, that the producer knows that sound that we want. And having critical ears, it doesn't always mean having five to 10 of your friends hanging out in the studio. If that's the vibe you want to go for, that is totally cool. But maybe that's a perfect opportunity to record a live album. Um, just be aware of who's there in your area, because the moment you get into that studio, it feels different and you want to make sure that um, everybody's involved. And what I will say, going back to the financing, you want to make sure that if you're hiring people that you don't know or that are not your friends, that you're transparent on what it is that you're, how you're compensating them and what you're compensating them. Uh, don't just assume. And if you need to figure out how to make that happen, you can figure it out, like the, all those ways I mentioned. But if you know that upfront by planning, then you'll feel way more comfortable and not stressed. The only thing that musicians want to do when they get into the studio is just play. And just play and having a support system behind you will help you just play and just be able to create music. Um, but what I will say is it's really fun getting to know the business behind it. And I'm going to go ahead and throw it to John because later we are going to talk a little bit 
about the business and kind of take a glimpse underneath the hood of uh, what you need to do in the business side once you've recorded the record. So, um, uh, Johnny, I'm going to throw it to you. All right. So my part is about when should someone record and release a record? This is also part of, of marketing, like at what point in your career and how how you know how do you release it do you do a digital release do you do a physical release do you do singles what point of the year is a good year so let's start with a point of your career you know at first there is a a time when you're a student where you're still learning to play and figure out how to be good at your instrument and how to have something to say musically but let me tell you before you think you're ready, that's when you need to release a record. There is a point where you have enough, um, enough technique, enough of music that you've learned, that you have something to share, something unique to you, to your experience as a human, as a musician, that you can share in your music. And so it, that moment usually comes before you're ready to emotionally to be like, yes, I'm ready for people to hear me. Sometimes you need to, what Mark said about putting yourself with people who support you, you need to put yourself with people who will encourage you to do that push and get your first record. For us, that was in 2009 when we did A Cup of Fuzzy Water. We were not ready. We did not feel there yet, but it was one of those things where we knew it was what we had to do. And we just, we had to get that first one out and you have to do it. And we made it happen. Um, I think Mark was living in New York and I was in school for neuroscience. We hadn't been rehearsing or we hadn't been together for a while. Like, but it doesn't matter. We, at some point you have to just say, okay, I'm gonna release a record and make it happen. Okay, so now you are uh, a mid-career artist, you have um, much more experience, you're not as green. So how often should re you release a record? What I've seen, uh, and the people that I admire most, they're releasing records constantly, one a year, two a year. They're recording in other people's records, they're in the studio a lot, they're in demand musicians. And if they don't have something to say, they're going to work hard at figuring out what to say and strike while the, while the iron is hot. You got to keep going. You can't allow too much time to happen between releases because you lose momentum. And a music career is so much about momentum, about being able to take what you your audience from the last point to the next point of what you have in mind as an artist, what you're wanting to present, what you're thinking of, what you're feeling. And it's, if you're not releasing music, it's as if you're not talking to them. Uh, imagine having a partner and you don't talk to your partner. So you lose that connection and that momentum. So you have to keep putting music out there at least as often as you as you possibly can uh, and make it a good record. Um, but one to two years between records, it's okay. But 
honestly, my favorite artists are releasing records almost every, at least one under their name every year, plus whatever else they do as a side man or woman. Um, so uh, what point of the year should really you release a record? So now we're talking about marketing, about you have an album and you want people to uh, release, you want people to hear what you're doing. So look, this is kind of complicated. Uh, there is a lot going on in a year and you want to time your release so that the media has time to see what you're doing and want to talk about it and put it out there. Uh, an album that nobody's talking about is an album that nobody is listening to. And so uh, the, the first, the last two weeks of January is usually a good time because there's not a lot of festivals. There's not a lot going on. People just had their breaks. They're back into the swing of things. And, uh, and it's a great time. Some of the best albums of the year come out in January and they have the whole year to be played on the radio, to be promoted and to be talking about. So uh, January is a great month, especially the second half of the month. Now, Typically, South by Southwest is in February, and you can forget releasing your record and during that time because all the the media is busy with one of the biggest festivals in the world. Um, this year, South by Southwest is in March, I think 16th to the 20th. So uh, that's going to be a terrible time to release a, a record this year, especially. And this is, you know, the I'm. This the focus of this is for bands that are relatively unknown, independent bands or bands that aren't, you know, Brad Meldow can release a record whenever he wants yeah. because he's got Grammys and he's got one of the biggest record labels pushing him behind him. Johnny, can so, I jump in for a second? Yeah, absolutely. On that same tone, um, you know, the three of us found out a lot about records because we were talking about it at school. Hey, did you check out this record by Wolfpack or Snarky Puppy? Yeah. If I was home on my summer break, I only had access to, you know, who I was talking to. But if I was in the halls in the practice room every day, and then we're talking about music students, right? This, you know, this might be geared more toward music students. And so we've also released records right around the time of spring semester starts in January and fall semester starts. Um, are you going to mention December, not releasing a record in December by any chance? Because <laughs> oh, yeah. only because if you are trying to release a modern jazz record in December, um, be aware that everybody's releasing their holiday albums. Then most singers are releasing or re-releasing their records and they're being sent to NPR stations. If you're trying to do radio at that time and you have a radio promoter, uh, they're trying, they're usually having their NPR campaigns then. They have them in the spring and in the, and in the December, right before the holidays. And so they're going to be playing the classic Miles and Coltrane, not always, but if they're trying to raise money, they're mostly, they're most likely not going to play a modern jazz band that they, 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 they don't know. 
there are some hip radio stations that are going to do that and you have streaming so anything can happen and go viral streaming but you were right i like the january and i would say just at the end of summer as well we released yeah. the record in late spring right before the summer and we had just planned it around being able to tour through that summer and doing some of those like festivals and um being up in the northeast then of course we didn't expect what was going to happen which is um lockdowns and quarantine so okay back to you johnny <laughs> yeah thank you marky yeah uh like mark said uh you know february and march everyone is releasing the first quarter they're trying to get their records out in the first quarter it's hard to do a good release in the first quarter of the year um by the second half of april may and june this is probably the best time for independent and not super well-known artists emerging artists to to release their records festival season is usually in the autumn and 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 the early winter uh like december and so this is a good time to get your stuff out right before uh things get popping uh july there's sometimes there can be like the summer festivals i know pitch pitchfork has their festival and I'll, they're starting to get more competition for for different things august can be a good month um to to release a record by september you have so many things that are happening september october are just very difficult months to release music again this is a super busy time of year and it's hard to get noticed you will fall through the cracks uh november um maybe pre-thanksgiving but at a certain point that limits how much time you have to to market it after it's out because after thanksgiving it's all christmas all day every day and you know uh michael buble is going to release a christmas album and that's it life nobody will listen to anything else um or play anything else uh, anywhere. And can I kind of uh, butt in for a second? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I was thinking about the the first topic that we talked about, about making money with your record, right? <laughs> um, speaking of that, you know, I mentioned briefly in, uh, in passing that sometimes you get to sell your record by yourself. You know, when we did the, when we sold, when we did our last album or, or actually the album before the last one, speaking of holiday records, we did a holiday record last, uh, this last year, but, um, with everybody wants to rule the world, which was our first album with Arbors, we still had some copies to sell by ourselves whenever we did gigs. And this is something very important because nowadays without having tower records or, or big companies that have physical product in stock, but there's still the demand for that physical product. A lot of the times is either through your website or you go play a concert and people line up to buy your CD. So I remember uh, when we did standards, not standards, we actually happened to have uh, a, 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 we try to time it because we had a concert with Dick Heinemann uh, that we were doing in tandem and we were in the big hall at the Palladium um, in St. Petersburg. 
uh, what an 800 um, seat um, hall. Sorry, <laughs> forgot the word. Um, and we we knew we could move some units if we got the CDs by then. And we luckily we actually did. And you know we I believe that day we saw about 100 uh, CDs. So that's something. If you have a major concert or a festival, you can also sell your CDs at the festivals uh, that you are. So. Again, it doesn't always have to be through a publicist or, or, or at a grand scale, you know. So just wanted to, you can continue, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and summarize, I think some of the best times are either second half of January, June, uh, May, June, and August. That gives you the best chance of getting heard by people and having uh, that festival season. Like if you release in May or June and then in your booking festivals, you have that product to, for, to go and you have uh, you have a nice summer radio promotion campaign. You can use those numbers and those interviews to help get more sales and to promote your record. So um, those are my thoughts on that. Okay, so then the next part is uh, scheduling a digitally released versus a physical release. And Alejandro was just talking about merch. Merch is super important for a band. Personally, the you should merch. You should be very the creative doesn't stop in the record studio and the recording studio doesn't stop with the music. How you release your album should be thought of creatively. Experiment with different things. Uh, I've seen people who are releasing their albums exclusively on their Patreon page. And for the first couple of months, it lives there only and so if you're a big time artist, you have a Patreon and people, your fans want to hear it, they got to be members of your exclusive uh, part to in, to in order to be the first people to hear it. Uh, also, um, you know, if the once we go back to playing live shows, this is going to be huge. People hear you play. Of course, you're amazing because you work super hard and then they want to take you home with them. So you have T-shirts, you have tote bags, you have uh, stickers, you have uh, coasters, uh, also known as CDs or actual coasters. And uh, you have uh, hats, uh, anything that say, oh, my sister-in-law really loves this band, but she couldn't be here. So I'm going to buy her a T-shirt uh, or Oh, I know someone who really would love this to hear the CD, so I'm gonna put, uh, I'm gonna buy this CD. People say, oh, but I don't have a CD player. It's not true. Just about everyone has a DVD player in their house, or a Blu-ray player, an Xbox, a PlayStation. Those devices all play CDs. So if Johnny, you I have a question. Car, what about yeah. what about a vinyl release? Aha, uh -huh. vinyl releases are great. Vinyl release, I think in 2018, 
uh, vinyl sales exceeded CD sales mm -hmm. uh, or very close to it, something ridiculous like that. I don't Some know people will number. buy the vinyl because they want to own the vinyl and they want to collect it. So, you know, yes. we had talked a little bit about who your listener is. And sometimes it's just somebody who wants to collect a record and collect a vinyl. And I will say we miss that. We have missed out on that because people ask us all the time, hey, do you have that on vinyl? And we don't. We have not done vinyl, uh, you know. But if you do do vinyl, how far in advance, John, do you have to plan? Let's say I want to do a record tonight. I want it to come out, you know, next month. Could I do that with vinyl? Uh, you need at least three months. Okay. Uh, <laughs> to, uh, the vinyl process. I did a vinyl for my uh, solo piano uh, CRISPR record and uh, it is super cool doing vinyl. I mean, it's just amazing. You still have companies that that's all they do. Their job is to press records on vinyl and it's awesome. It's part of your merch. Super important. Like Mark said, people collect vinyls. You can charge more for vinyls than you can for a CD. It's special. You can make a limited edition thing where you only make you know, a thousand vinyls and that's it. Once they're gone, they're gone. Nobody yeah. will ever get a vinyl um, unless you want to make a second run, you know, if it becomes really popular. Uh, so you need about 12 weeks in advance to just get a test pressing of vinyl yeah. for digital. It's about eight. Uh, it's a it's about four to six weeks before it becomes available on a digital site, meaning um you know, uh, Apple Music, Spotify, uh, any, any of those streaming services. And if you want to release a single inside of that streaming site, you need even more time because you have to plan when does that single come out? Yes. Um, so let's talk about the singles. Yeah. Um, the best way to do singles is to do them ahead of your record. So you're you're getting before you release your record, you are you don't want to be like, hey, guys, I released my record today. And it's the first day anybody's ever heard of you doing a record. That's the worst idea on how to release a record. What you want is to get people warmed up to this idea that you're going to be releasing a record. So ahead of time, you're creating content. You are taking pre-orders, you have your pre-saves available on Spotify and Apple Music, and you're already doing a pre-save campaign. Then you wanna release two or three singles, two weeks apart or one week apart. Um, and so the last three weeks before your album comes out, single comes out, a week happens, single comes out, a week happens, a single comes out. People start getting excited, there's buzz, you get momentum, and then your album comes out. So then you've had a whole month of doing pre-saves of people already getting listening to your music and getting excited and and then this part of the thing. And so I highly suggest if you're doing a full album, I mean not an EP, I think an EP has a minimum uh, has to have uh, no more than five tracks, six tracks or something, you know, there's four to four to six tracks makes an EP. And so if you're doing more than that, I highly suggest doing at least two singles just to get people uh, warmed up and ready to 
buy your album, to listen to it, to pre-save it, all of that stuff. Because if you release it and that's the first time people ever heard of you releasing it, then now you have to spend a month waiting for this traction to happen. Uh, and so you lose a yeah. lot of momentum. Behind the scenes as well, you know, you know, Alejandro mentioned all the different ways that you can release in a record. It might be just for your parents. It might be for, you know, your friends in the neighborhood. If you want to release music, you know, uh, this comedian Jerry Seinfeld always talks about the levels of being a comedian. There's being funny for your family. There's being funny for your friends. There's being funny for your friends' friends that you don't know. And then there's being funny for people you don't know and they're paying you. <laughs> and that's hard. So what you want to do is I want, you know, as a band, we want to make music and for people that have never, that don't know us and have not listened to us. And we've talked about the, our ideal listener and it's all over the board. And the three of us have grown as musicians. Therefore our music has sort of changed and somebody else is at a different part of their life and they may experience our first album and really connect to that and make it to our next albums and connect to that. Um, John released a record that ended up getting playlisted on Spotify under a sleeping category, music for sleeping, not to put down music for sleeping, but that person experienced that music. So we love the idea. Writers talk about this, which is. But did they, Mark? <laughs> the, the Sleeping idea is a of, part of life. Yeah. The, the moment you yeah. release this record, it's no longer yours. They're going mm -hmm. to experience it in their own way. They may dance to it. They might meditate to it. They may, you know, hate listen to it, whatever. to sleep. Yeah, they may put children to sleep with it, but, you know, it's amazing because it maybe crossed the demographic of what you thought you released music as and what the music is released as. Again, we talked about the vinyl listener. They only want to own the vinyl. They may not have an attachment to the actual music. They have an attachment to the physical product. Um, and so... I, I kind of wanted to mention the, the listener because we always talk about who is our listener. What's our listener? What's your listener on this record? It, you know, we once released a record and with the idea of seeing if we can get radio airplay. And we did. And from there, it's we've progressively gotten radio airplay consistently with any record after that because but it was just the idea of being excited about releasing music to people that have never heard of us in Arizona, in the Netherlands, um, and then connecting with them on another level through a live yeah. performance or yeah. social media. Um, you guys want to get to the uh, yeah. business part really quick? Yeah, well, uh, we could yeah. talk about this forever, uh, as you can see. But um, yeah. A couple of things to keep in mind here um, is the legality of what we do, right? We talked about artists not getting paid enough, so <laughs> we got to cover the basis in terms of what you do. And, and a big thing within jazz, especially when you're recording the uh, the Great American Songbook or, or covers, as we know them, um, you got to make sure that you're doing so legally. Um, so. There's a few different organizations that will help you do it, to do that. And also, if you're recording original music, you want to make sure you actually get paid for that original music. So there's ASCAP, there's DMI, 
CSAC, there's a, a few different organizations. And this, this part is, you know, it, this could be a whole masterclass in itself because it, it gets a little bit complicated. But the good thing is that there's a lot of research you can just a little bit. Um, but there's a lot of information you can find online on their, on their own websites, you know, and obviously ask other musicians. You know, we're always open, you know, if you want to reach out to us, um, please feel free to do so. Um, and uh, the Harry Fox Agency is also one that's very important. I've seen people online ask about this all the time. The Harry Fox Agency is basically a third party that helps you connect with uh, publishers and composers of people that own the rights to other music. So what happens sometimes, especially with more modern music, is that you have multiple people that are part of a different organization, ASCAP or BMI. They both do the same thing, but different people subscribe to them. So basically, let's say that you record a song by somebody else, let's say David Bowie. Um, then you go into Harry Fox Agency, uh, their website, they have a way to search for the song. So it'll say how much, what percentage of that is owned by who. And the cool thing with them is that you don't really have to reach out directly to the person that, uh, to the publisher, you can just through the Harry Fox Agency and a fee, of course, none, none of this is free you can ask for the permission, the legal permission to record this. And it's all based on the number of copies that you make. Uh, it works differently for, digitally, for digital stuff as well and streaming, but uh, it, they really make it very easy and, and it's fairly affordable, but that's a really, really good place to know. Um, what do you want to add, Mark? You have some more? Yeah, I'll add the, the original, um, recording original music. So on the music that you uh, that you write, you want to make sure that each song is encoded with a digital tag. It's sort of like when you tag your friends in a photo online on social media to see who's in the photo. Each song has a digital code. It's called the ISRC. That's the songwriter code. There's actually a, a code on the publishing side. I'll talk about that in a second. And that's the ISWC. It's the International Standard Recording Code. The publisher side is the uh, International Standard Writing Code. And when you uh, that music is played and it's streamed, it's on the radio, it's being played in a TV show somewhere, whenever it's played anywhere that's not on a CD in somebody's car, you get a royalty for that performance. You get a royalty for performing that music live in concert. And that ISRC is picked up by those PROs, the Performing Rights Organizations Alejandro mentioned, ASCAP, BMI. They collect those codes and saying, ah, it was played in Canada. And so we're making sure that that radio station pays their royalty fees and it goes to the artist and it adds up and you get paid every quarter for that code. Now, as a songwriter, you only own half of that recording. Half. You're thinking, of the but I wrote the song. The publisher owns the other half. It is a historic thing that has happened in, you know, the United States, in the world of the publisher, the person who owns the publishing. So La Lucha owns all our publishing, all of our music, because we started our own publishing company. And 
Um, it's called Fuzzy Water Music. So when anybody in La Lucha records a song, if John writes a song, he gets 50%, and the La Lucha publisher gets the other 50%. That way, when the money does come in, it's that full 100%. Now, what publishers also do is some publishers, they own uh, or they own or they have a collection of songwriters and they have the songwriters write music for them. And that's how publishers normally make music or they sell uh, they sell the sheet music for it to be performed. OK, so you want to make sure that your codes are encrypted you know, it sounds really it sounds, it sounds embedded, yeah. it's embedded into the physical album this happens most of the time in the mastering process and you want to make sure your isrcs are embedded in your album before they're sent out into the digital digital and physical yes. world this is important to make sure that you get paid on the other side you, there are some websites to go to. One of them I'll name is Sound Exchange, and you yes. upload. Hey, I have a new record, and here are the songs. This normally happens after the record comes out because it recognizes that it was put out digitally, and it yeah. says here are all the songs that I own. And so, it, yeah, can I say really quick? Uh, Sound Exchange is the company that collects internet radio. Yes. Right. Okay. They won't collect if Spotify plays your song as a somebody goes to Spotify, clicks on your song and listens to it. The mechanical royalties uh, triggered by that are paid by Spotify. But sound. Ex but if they do Spotify radio or if they do uh, Apple radio or Pandora radio, um, that sound exchange is the company that collects the radio royalties on your behalf. Yeah. And and they have it. And sometimes people don't know for years they've never registered. And then they register and they see that they have a nice chunk of money waiting for them when they Yeah, there's when they millions register. that are sitting in royalties not being collected by a lot yeah. of artists. Now, I just another advisory. Oh, yes. Don't let this deter you from recording or releasing a record. If you don't want to go that route, it's okay. We've done that in our earlier records where we didn't do any of this crazy process. We didn't know. Record the music because you feel that it's right to record the music. If you do have questions or your friends have questions, we are here. The internet is here. We can help you with directing you in the right place to make sure that all of this business yeah. is put, you know, We've had people come to us and say, hey, we want to license your music for a YouTube video or for a film. Well, you have to make sure that you get paid for that. So are you going to get paid one chunk or are you going to get paid over time every time it's played? That's licensing your music. And that's actually yeah. how most musicians make a regular, consistent living licensing their music to tv film commercial um and and if can i say one thing uh also course. if you uh once you release your record radio and publicity uh specialists are highly highly recommended unless you are deeply embedded into the music business and radio stations and jazz writers and bloggers know you by name and are willing to open your mail with your name on it. If not, then you can hire people 
who will do that for you, who they have relationships with, and they will send your albums and on your behalf to radio stations and to reviewing agencies to get, uh, you know, we got reviewed in Downbeat on our last uh, release and all about jazz uh, because we had a publicist doing this work for us. So you should start saving money now in order to be able to afford those people because they, they are not cheap. Uh, there's, those people are people that have spent years within the industry making those yeah. connections to become trusted by other musicians. Which brings us into that whole idea of the industry and who you know and what you know and what kind of relationships you build with those people. Yeah. Always keep doors open, you know, always make connections with people. If you have uh, the opportunity as a, as a musician to play with a bigger name, make sure you establish a relationship and pick their brain and, and, and really connect within that because really this industry is all about creating those connections. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a personal relationship that you have with people. So uh, I know for us, one of the advantages that we've had is that as a rhythm section, we've backed a lot of people and that has opened a lot of doors for us. Um, yeah. You know, people that have taken chances on us. In fact, Rich, Rachel Lumber from um, Arbors, that's how we got to know her by backing some of her artists. Yeah. So we had that opportunity. So don't, again, you know, there's a lot of different ways to release an album. There's a lot of different ways to market an album. There's a lot of different ways that you can get this done. But most importantly is just to kind of a brief summary is just have a good plan <laughs> on how, why, or why, how, and when to do it and make the most out of it. You know, like Mark said, or John said it, I said it myself, we're here, you can reach out to us. You know, if you're uh, a student in the Tampa Bay area that's watching this video, feel free to reach out to us, you know, or you don't have to be a student. If you're just somebody that has a question, you know, we're, we're here and, and if we can answer a question or help you with anything, we're, we'll be happy to do it. <laughs> I, that really concludes the, the larger amount of what we've talked about. As you can see, we can go on and on about this. Um, we talk about this, you know, when we're together, we are constantly planning and figuring things out and learning new things about the music industry, because that's what this is. Um, and we started it because we wanted to have fun. It became a business, which we'll talk a little bit about and next week as uh, being a band. But what I will say is, overall, we've always had fun. We didn't let the idea of being a business and, oh, we have to work, we have to feed our families, we have to pay our mortgage. We never let that get over the fact that we absolutely have a good time and the word play is so important. Make sure you're always playing. Children play. You should play as well. Um, are there any questions? Is there anything that uh, somebody wants to ask that we haven't answered? We promise to keep it short, if anything. <laughs> I if have a not, question okay. here, yeah. uh, Mark. Thank you guys, first of all, for uh, just sharing so much great information on the business and how to do this. I know it can be a tedious pro process, but 
You guys made it sound real simple today. <laughs> um, the question is, um, how has your experience been with uh, working with well-known artists when it comes to getting them on your album? Was it, um, was it difficult? Did it come through relationships or, I mean, how was that whole experience, you know, especially with the business side of things, because people recognize their name. Of course, it's like they're helping you, you're helping them. How has that experience been with you guys as far as LaLucha? Yeah, so um, on our Everybody Wants to Rule the World release um, is when we had the you know, household or best known names in the jazz community. Um, and I'll say some of those are Houston Person, Melissa Aldana, Ken Poplowski, Chuck Red, and Diego Figueredo. We had a longer list of guest musicians. Um, and they're across cultures and generations. Now, let's, let's take Houston Person. So, uh, Houston, we've actually met through a, a good friend of ours, James Suggs. Uh, James, uh, we also have met Houston at festivals. That's the whole context that Alejandro was talking about. We got to connect with Houston through uh, the Sarasota Jazz Festival. We met him through James Suggs when he got to meet him and he produced his record. And we had written a song called Blues for Houston Person. Ken Poplowski, who we met at a jazz festival through Dick Hyman. And, you know, we kind of just kept crossing paths, eventually started having a conversation and asked him to produce the record. He had the connections. Ken knew everybody. Ken knows everybody. Um, and he was the one that said, hey, for Blues for Houston Person, we should get Houston Person to be on this record. And we were like, really? Like, just call him up. You know, we have met him. We've, you know, had a, you know, but not a we're going to text and talk relationship. And he called him up. And uh, we were very lucky to have label support. So Rachel Domber con contacted Houston and said, hey, would you like to be on this record as well? Ken vouched for us. And he was all for it. Now, some of the other names like Melissa Aldana, we didn't know her. And she didn't know us, but she heard what we had sent. She uh, believed in what we wanted to do. And she was also being paid for it as well. I won't say that she did it. She knew, she, knew, she knew Ken as well. She knew Ken very well. And so she knew that she wasn't just showing up into a studio blind and she didn't know if she was going to be working or not. We weren't just throwing charts in her face. We were organized and planned. And so she was on board and we created a talking relationship. So what I will say is every person is human and every person wants to play music and wants to be surrounded by other people that want to make good music as well. And so if there's something that you really want to make music with, absolutely go for it and figure out a way to contact them through a website, through somebody else. Um, and yes, one, one thing I was going to mention that I, I, I don't think it was very clear that we actually had played with Houston on a couple of occasions. So he knew our musicianship. So he wasn't, 
You know, it wasn't, you know, we didn't know him there in a very personal way, but we had played with him. We had played with uh, Ken Piplowski as well. We had played with Diego Figueredo, which was another one of the guests. So we did have a musical connection, um, which I think really made it easier. Of course, like Mark mentioned, they were all paid. But um, the idea of them, I think there is a difference between how them just showing up to a random studio session or showing up to a studio session that they know they're going to enjoy playing the music with, because I think you get a different a different uh, environment that way. And we were very lucky that they really dug what we were doing, and they were really just as supportive as they could be. You know, it was it was really a wonderful experience working with those people. Awesome answer, awesome answer. Here's the last question that popped up: um, What is a successful album for La Lucha far as sales or streams? I know every group has, you know, the number that they want to hit and they're like, oh, I love 4 million streams or I love, you know, 10,000 vinyl sold. In your, your idea of success from your group when you're recording, what's that number that you say, hey, guys, you know, this was well worth it. Look at the numbers. People are talking about it. Is there a number or is it more of just the experience of doing it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the first thing you want to do is when you first order your CDs, you order them in a bulk of 500, 1,000, 1,500. The first thing you want to do is sell out your first 1,000 CDs, right? That, that is awesome that you you have you spent a lot of money on getting this thing out and that's you have physical your success CD. you physically physical. moved products yeah, yeah. out of your house and garage yeah so you can actually see the growth of this is gone now yes yeah, I, I, exactly. I think a good a good example uh mark mentioned a cup of fuzzy water which was our first album uh we only had 100 copies and we sold out of those it took us like five years but we sold out of them uh and part of that was that we were not uh really gigging actively during those five years uh the record we did after that we sold out pretty quickly out of those same hundred copies which was also self um we did we did it ourselves and then we did uh uh standards not standards which was a more um i think we had a thousand copies of that and i Mm -hmm. believe we sold out of that um We had we actually got lucky in that one because the manufacturer made an error on a shipment and we got 200 free copies of that, yeah. which was uh, great. Um, for the for the Arbor's record that we did, you know, it's a very different story now because you know now it's being sold in different places that we couldn't reach before, um, and also it was you know, but ultimately what the record label sees in this, you know, they're they're aware that selling records is not a a huge, um, the huge business it used to be. So I think they're happy to to be moving units. For us personally, I think the most important thing is that we had, um, I guess to a certain extent, the radio reach that we got on this record was a lot more. Yeah, we peaked at like number 11. Uh, yeah, we made it onto the, the Jazz Week charts, and, and we stayed there for, a bit. I think, 14 weeks in the top 40, yeah. uh, which was great for us, you know, because yeah. the, 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 the way we measure the success really is to be able to reach a wider audience, you know, to be able to 
was Gix Resume to be able to go elsewhere and gig and that's actually how you get to move a lot more units like i was mentioning yeah. earlier because you get your copies now, you go to that I, venue sell them i want to jump in and say that in the in the form of streaming we had mm -hmm. a holiday record come out in uh late in mid-november and because it was a holiday album the streaming was insane the, the, you know, I, I only can speak to Spotify. I really didn't check the other numbers, but I have, we have the back end to Spotify. And we also co-released it with Adrian Cunningham, who is more worldwide known. And we had a few other guest artists and it, you know, because it was like, oh, this is a holiday record, more people wanted to listen to holiday music. So that received more streams in a period of two weeks than our previous record had done in six months. It doesn't speak to anything about the, the fact that this is what people wanted to listen to. And it was reaching across genres into a holiday. Um, now, then I, I, I can say I check the numbers all the time. I'm obsessed with numbers, and but really it should be a set it and forget it. It doesn't make a difference whether it's good or bad or if we sold more, we definitely didn't sell more holiday records because we had more streams. People were just had more access to it. People were sharing it more. Um, but as far as like success in numbers, it's just this like never ending. You just want like, growth. You just want yeah. to be better than your last one. You and, know? and, and, you know, I don't think, you know, that's something we mentioned at the top, but it is the industry right now really is in flux because we're trying to figure out, yeah. I think part of the industry is still trying to catch up on how to really monetize streaming for the artist. You know, and I mean, the labels are still making money off of it. That's part of the, the issue there without getting too deep into that wormhole. But, you know, we're still, we're trying to find a way, you know, the, the industry really peaked in the, in the early 2000s. And then, you know, with, with streaming and everything, everything just kind of, you know, I, mean, I think that you can see this in many, in many ways that real life is trying to catch up with digital life um, in terms of yeah. how to make all of those things work. So, you know, we are aware of that. We're also aware that, you know, we're mostly self-made, um, you know, and we're playing a genre that's not <laughs> particularly, uh, you know, it's not going to move great numbers, you know, in terms of uh, streams and all that stuff. So, you know, becoming well, better known around the country, uh, around the world is, is a process that takes time. Um, I'll use the example of Snarky Poppy. Uh, we were talking about albums and the visual aspect of things, Snarky Poppy really became famous because of their, their videos, because they released, they kind of were able to package their stuff and YouTube, you would watch their videos with the audience on stage with them and they obviously could play really well. And that kind of separated them from the pack. And now they're like a, a, a commodity in the festival, in the festival world. But it took him 10 years to even be noticed, you know, and that, it, it, unfortunately, that's just kind of the world that we live in right now, unless you are dealing directly with a producer who's going to put you at the top. That's just, it just takes time to get your name out there, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. it really does. Wow. 
maybe we'll have to do a part two of this. <laughs> well, yeah. we want to uh, thank you guys so much for all the information that you shared today. So whether you're a student or you're expert, a pro musician, I know we all could get something uh, from this session today. Hope you took notes. And don't forget, you can always go back and check for past and you know future sessions. Um, you can check us out on www.clearwaterjazz.com slash education. And of course, all of our sessions are free and we'll love to see you at the next one. Um, coming up this week, we have a couple of great ones. Um, so tomorrow, which is uh, February uh, 2nd, we have Alejandro is coming back and he's uh, talking about what I love about Francos Motin. Also, we have Brandon Robertson. He's going to be here uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Uh, talking about constructing harmonic bass lines, part two. Um, on Wednesday, another one, John O'Leary is going to be back with us. And um, his topic is going to be what I love about Jelly Roll Morton. So, uh, so many great sessions coming up. Stick with us, continue to spread the word, bring more people in. Let's talk about this music that we love called jazz. Hope everyone's having a great evening and we'll see you at the next one. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.